We're here. It's Crime and Time. On the rocks. And in print. In print. Yeah. With, with an up drink. So we are doing The Journalist. The Journalist. And this is a gin, dry vermouth, sweet vermouth, orange curacao, lemon, and angostura bitters cocktail. So served, there's about 500 ingredients. 500 ingredients um, in our uh, coupe glass, like the crystal-ish looking. Yeah, they're not real crystal. It's not real. <laughs> but it's crystal E. It's crystal E. I think I bought them at Pier 1 for my 40th birthday. It smells like a lot of vermouth. Um, it's an interesting color. It's almost like um, orange Gatorade a little bit, but not bright. See, I was thinking... I won't say what I was thinking. Something with a bodily fluid. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, it's a- not urine. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I'll try it though. Let's try it. <laughs> wow, I don't like it. I don't know. Do I? It's lemony sweat socks. I like the little hint of spice at the end. That's probably I'm the feeling bitters. Meg at the end. Let me try it again. Yeah, I think, okay, my problem with it is the orange curacao. I'm not a big orange fan. Oh. And I think I like with, with the orange with the vermouth is a little, like. I like it. It's very, it tastes like fall to me. I'm getting a lot of nutmeg and cinnamon. I'll, I'll, I'll drink it. Yeah, I'm going to go get ice, but I'll drink it. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, it's not like I won't order one in a restaurant. Never. They wouldn't know what to make anyway. <laughs> Pause for ice. All right, we're back from ice break. Can ice we, break. We always need to remember to get ice with these cocktails. Okay, because the up thing, we're talking, it just gets hot, and I like cold drinks. And also, it's extremely hot out right now, so. It's 100 and stupid hot, as I always say. So I'm going to tell you my sources later, because then you will get what, they're, what they are. So, having known me for 20-plus years, what do you think I'm going to do for the journalist? I would think I like about Woodburn yellow Mercy. journalism. Yes. So whenever I am given a math problem to do, which as an adult happens to you surprisingly more often than you would think. I don't math. <laughs> well, that's what you say. When, whenever I'm given a math problem to do, I say, I can tell you about the Spanish-American War. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You do say that. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't math, but I can tell you about the spanish american i'm like i do words not numbers so so i'm going to tell you about the prelude to the spanish american war which is called yellow journalism exciting (gasps) and my sources now that i've already spoiled it will say um, the true story of the circulation wars between hertz and pulitzer and hertz versus pulitzer the history of american journalism and this cocktail does skew slightly yellow (gasps) it is yellow it is a yellow journalist cocktail with a little bit of spice at the end. You have some, you have a tractor coming down your street, if anyone can hear that. That is a tractor, legitimately. Why are you surprised by this? I'm this not is surprised. This not abnormal. I'm just letting the people know that if they hear a tractor, it's coming from your house. This is not an abnormal occurrence in our town. We You eat it, we grow it, people. All right. So, crazy fake news. As Trump would say, 
It's literally nothing new. It has been going on for way, 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 way too long. Um, the press is incredibly powerful. The way news circulates is incredibly powerful. What news circulates is incredibly powerful. Did you hear that whole thing about the church, the visit to the church that happened ages and ages ago? What visit? Remember the, what visit? <laughs> Remember the visit to the church that happened like around the whole riot thing and the police had to come oh, out? Oh, yeah, but I knew that like way before. Well, yeah, but it's now officially come out that yeah. no, we didn't know he was coming. We just were clearing the streets because we we're clearing the streets. But anyway, what news comes out when it comes out? Totally calculated, which is sad because news should be news. If it happens, you should hear about it. Well, when it goes to, like, when you're told, like, in our lifetime, being the age that we are, when we're told that, you know, Walter, Con Walter Cronkite is trustworthy and what he says is true and that he's a trustworthy person. But Walter Cronkite is only as good as the things that they're put in front of him. Correct. But, like, we grew up with our parents trusting the news. Right. But I think that the time period that our parents grew up and were influencing us, the news was a tad more legitimate than it was than it is now. And was before. And was prior to that. It went yes. through a small like truth-telling period. It went through a small truth-telling period, which is partly based on this story. Because after this story, people said, whoa, WTF maybe we better pump the brakes a little bit. Interesting. Which is kind of why we have stories like Watergate. Mm-hmm. You know, because can you imagine Watergate now? What would we actually know about it? It depends on what people wanted us to know. Yes, what people wanted us to know. Anyway, okay, so, rewind. We are in New York at the end of the 19th century, and... By the, at this point, it is tabloid journalism. Like, you look at the headline on the Inquirer, that's what you're going to see on your local newsstand. That's what you're going to see the little newsboys. Newsboys, that's a whole other drink right there. We need a drink called the Newsboy. We need a drink called the Newsboy because I will tell that story. It's not like Disney told you. Which is cute and kind of adorable. Was a little more murderous than that. Yeah. <laughs> We need a drink called the Newsboy. <laughs> the Newsboy was not a good thing. Make up a drink called the Newsboy. Make it, it palatable. Not sweet. <laughs> and send it to us. Anyway, so one of our major players um, was, called, was born in um, Hungary. He was born in April of 1847. He had a fairly easy childhood. He was educated in private schools, and he was taught to speak multiple languages, so he was a little well-to-do. Um, but he wanted his own path. He wanted to be able to strike his own way. He wanted to be able to make his own name. So he thought that the U.S. military was the way to do that, so he enlisted in the U.S. military right before the start of the Civil War. Ooh, bad timing. Bad timing. I mean, he probably would have joined anyway because most people did. <laughs> they did. But so that was in 1864. So he didn't serve very long and he found his way out alive, thank goodness. And he started working odd jobs to start paying the bills before he started to study law. Um, in 1868, he meets his 
former commanding officer, Carl Schultz, who Carl Schultz happens to be owner, part owner of a German language newspaper. And he said, hey, Pulitzer, you speak German. I have a newspaper that prints in German. You want a job? Pulitzer said, sure, I'll take a job. And he really takes to this work. So he um, earns himself a reputation for rooting out corruption. He finds bribes. He finds payoffs. He, he gets the story first. And he eventually, within a few years, works his way up to becoming managing owner, or managing editor, and then part owner. So once he's part owner and he's actually able to have a little money, he sells his interest to go back to St. Louis, where he buys the St. Louis Dispatch, grows this paper, builds his reputation, makes it something that he can sell, sells that. 1883, he moves to New York City and he purchases the New York World. The New York World. Yes. So we're going to put a pin in Pulitzer and we're going to move over to our other friend. William Randolph Hertz. Yes, him. And he was born in San Francisco in April of 1863. So he's a tad younger than Pulitzer. Um, he grew up surrounded by privilege. I want to do so many more stories on Hearst. If you have a cocktail that has anything whatsoever to do with Hearst. We do have one on our list called the Hertz Martini. Okay. Hearst Martini. I'm, I'm going to have to pick of the multiple things I want to talk about about this man. Because this man, fascinating. And do I want to talk about him or do I want to talk about his papa? Oh, there's a... Don't know. Backstories. There's some backstories. Maybe so anyway, it'll be our next two-parter. Could be our next two-parter. Papa and then the son. So anyway, um, he's living in San Francisco with Papa. Papa is very wealthy-ish. On paper, he's very wealthy. Oh, one of those. There's a whole, like, is this money real situation? Gotcha. But anyway, um, so he's giving his young son, William. And then there's the whole granddaughter. Mm. I can do the granddaughter. You can do the granddaughter. That's it. Got it. Yep. Okay. Got it. Good. <laughs> I still need to narrow down my her story though, because there's we'll put multiple, that one in the rotation. Things you'll that be we could say you'll be hearing this one soon. You'll from be hearing us. this one soon. So anyway, Papa sends him to private tutors. He takes tours of Europe. William has the good life. He's good. I want to live that life. Right. He um, gets to into the university. He gets into um, a very fancy university, Harvard. Harvard. And he's in Harvard for a little while. However, Papa's money and influence cannot keep him from getting expelled. That seems to happen from time to time. Yes, which sounds like another good story. So send us a recipe, Harvard, Pulit or Hearst, whatever, expulsion. Although I don't think I'd want to drink a drink called expulsion. That sounds that sounds like something you buy at a gas station. <laughs> oh my, I have to take a drink. Don't send us a drink called expulsion. Please don't. <laughs> um, so anyway, Junior is expelled, so he goes back home. By this point, Father has acquired the San Francisco Examiner. Um, Junior, while he was at Harvard, which I will talk about later, um, had an opportunity to become business manager of the Harvard Lampoon. And he did really well at it. Like, he kind of kicked butt in this magazine, made it something. He finally did something on his own. Yes, and he was good at it. So he 
tells dad, hey, dad, I can do the examiner. Let me do the examiner. So he lets him do it, and he ends up taking over in 1887. Son invested, exactly like a previous podcast that we just talked about, $8 million in this newspaper. Oh, my goodness. In 1887. And it's he, gone now. Yes. <laughs> but it wasn't for a long time. It was he like, it was he still, made a decent living. It was still there in our lifetime. Hence the castle. Yes. Um. So he did well. He invests this money in by getting by getting upgraded equipment, by getting um, good reporters. He he's really trying to make this paper something. And he says, "Hey, Dad, here's a guy that we need to emulate. This guy is doing awesome, awesome, awesome things. We need to do like he does." Um, papers in like the New York Times had up until this point favored a sort of detached and impartial view of the news. Um, however, the world from Pulitzer is kind of inserting themselves in the story. They are becoming part of it. And Hertz is like, that's kind of cool. So um, Pulitzer is changing the way newspaper is done. He's changing it from dry, boring information to a source of entertainment. He writes for the general public, not the wealthy elite. I keep using my hand. I've noticed that a lot today. I'm like going like this all the all over the place. Nobody you knows. You can't see it, but you do. Um, so he's trying to expose corruption. He's adding pictures and comics and headlines, anything to grab the eye. He wants the news to be flashy. And Hertz says... That guy's on to something. Let's do what he's doing. He's designing a social media platform. Kinda. So these two start, you know, obviously they're competing for eyeballs. Um, but as as everyone is doing now, but they don't hate each other. Hearst seems to admire Pulitzer to the point that he's trying to emulate him. My question would be, um, obviously the New York Globe was a national newspaper. Was the San Francisco Examiner at this time a national newspaper? Not yet, but Hearst... Wanted, he was aspiring. He gets it there. Yeah, yes. okay. He gets it there. He gets it there to the point that he has the money to then leave the Examiner and go to the east and he purchases the new york morning journal okay so he's aspiring to be on the national yes level. and so now he is so he's he's made his little paper in san francisco profitable it's making enough money that he can now go purchase a larger paper on a larger stage and start to compete so now pulitzer is like dang I've got somebody who is doing the same thing as me, and I've, I've got to start paying attention. So headlines get bigger. Headlines get more colorful. We start to add color to the paper. We start to add more sensationalism. We start to cut our price. So Hirsch, for his New York morning journal, charges a penny. Wow, penny press. Penny press. So Hearst or Pulitzer says, I can charge a penny. 
So he starts charging. Is he so was Hearst subsidizing the price of that with his other newspaper, or was that just? I do not see how he could not be at first, at least. Yeah, at first, at least he would have to be. And Daddy's not poor. No, true, true. At at first, he has to be. But you can't run a run a deficit every for all your business. But if he's doing as he begins to continue this sensationalized journalism. He's going even he's, th- even yeah, if you're charging growing, a penny if you're selling he's growing his audience two hundred thousand newspapers a day. Well, and he's selling more advertising, which yes, I didn't even just I just dawned on me that's mm-hmm. how you make money in newspapers. That's how you make your money in the newspapers. Yes. So obviously there's you know a problem. So now they're they're not only competing for prices, they start Hearst is starting to pull away some of the good reporters. Yeah. Because he's offering them higher salaries, which I think he's still subsidized by daddy a little bit. I don't know. I, this is purely speculation. A, I'm drunk. B, well, it don't could quote be, me. It's speculation. It could also be the thing where the grass is greener on the other side. Right. And you right, had a new yes. upcoming But he's thing. promising higher salaries. He's giving better jobs. Um, one of the people that he pulls away is Richard Outcult. And Outcult was the man who was writing the popular comic strip, Hogan's Alley. Oh, that's a thing. That's a thing. It was the comic strip that had the yellow kid. There's a whole big circle that you can go down about was the yellow kid racist, blah, blah, blah. But the, Or was he a Simpson? Well, the mm. the the... Predominant theory is that he wore yellow clothes. Now, whether he wore yellow clothes because Outcult wanted him to yellow, wear yellow clothes or whether he wore yellow clothes because that was the color it printed. But then I've also heard that his skin was yellow. Yeah, I would almost think... I don't know. I've never seen a copy of the paper. I haven't either. But I would almost think that some of it might have had to do with the printing capabilities right, at the time. Right, But so he's the yellow kid. And this this outcult goes back and forth. He's pulled this way. He's pulled that way. Eventually, Hearst gets him. Um, but Pulitzer just ends up hiring George Lux to keep drawing the same comic. So now they both have the same comic <laughs> drawn by two different people. Whatever. <laughs> anyway... Um, so this style of sensationalized, ridiculous journalism began to be called yellow journalism, and it is highly speculated that this came from the yellow kid out of, what is it called? Hogan's Alley, the comic strip. So anyway, yellow journalism is basically a form of reporting that is incredibly sensationalized to get you to buy the paper to put it in modern terms it's clickbait clickbait yeah that's exactly what i was thinking it is the headline that says Meghan markle and prince harry did not want did have a royal title for archie but they didn't want to be bullied you're gonna click on that but they leave how's just, he gonna be bullied they leave just enough out of the headline that makes you think well, yes. Why didn't they want him to have a royal title? I clicked on that, and it was because the royal title that he was offered was such and such Earl of Dunbarton. Dumbarton. Well, who would want their kid to be the Earl of Dumbarton? 
It's better than the Earl of Nobarton. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. I don't but know. It's, I'm not so a... it's not, the point is that it's a sensational title. You click on it and it's a freaking nothing story. Mm-hmm. And that is what they were doing. That happens all the time. Because the time. I am a frequent reader of various news sites. And I find myself like, there's times when I'm like, Oh my God, is that true? Well, on social media, and I don't know if they did this in this instance, but on social media, they frequently leave off part of the headline. So you have to click to To find out the rest. Yes, they did. To read the rest of the headline, Uh to even know if you're interested in it. Yes. And then it's the, the rest of the headline is reasonably interesting. What I hate is, and I haven't found one for a while, but you click on the headline and then it just runs the same sentences over and over again in a different order for like five pages and you have to keep clicking here and clicking here and clicking there and then it never gives I you the answer I won't it do it I won't do it I got sucked down that a couple of times no. last year and it it I regret it but anyway so this is what yellow journalism was it had a loud sensational headlines that were often hyperbolized beyond recognition that were just too much they were they used big bold print they used illustrations they used photos um photos quotes um it was very hey hey look here look here look here so and another method that Hirsch started using was one upping pulitzer's editorial style so you might have something that would be um, an exciting or alluring crime story. And Pulitzer finally said, hey, what are we doing? Why are we just selling these these big crime stories? Neither one of us are doing real journalism. And his editor said, can I show you how much money you're making? So basically proving the whole point that it's not the journalism that was selling the papers. Right. So anyway, which is sad because there's a whole prize named after Pulitzer and he basically well, fed into this whole thing. He gets, he redeems himself. I'm not saying he, he didn't because I think he's a true journalist based on your previous background of him. But it's yeah. like he right at this point in time in your story, he's, he's just, he fed into all of it. He did. And I don't know if he just was trying to stay afloat and this Hertz guy was just being nasty or got carried away. Or got carried away. But he, he does somewhat redeem himself through the thing. So tensions begin to rise between the two, and it's just getting better, getting worse. And about the same time in the, the 19th century, there's tensions rising between the United States and another country. And Spain and Cuba are having a problem. Imperialism is ending It's starting to, people are starting to get fed up with imperialism and we don't like it. That's not right. And Cuba was very like put upon by Spain. A lot of the South American countries had already gained their independence by this time. Mexico had gained their independence by this time. And Cuba is still kind of struggling under this chokehold of imperialism. So the, the two papers are are kind of feeding into this frenzy of, oh, these poor, poor Cuban souls, we need to take care of them. And then they both got a lucky break. 
on February 15, 1898, when a very large explosion shattered a very large battleship, the USS Maine, literally sitting there, everybody's sleeping, and then it, boom, blows up. Um, about 260 American crewmen were killed. And just like today, word immediately goes out, immediately people start speculating and, and saying, immediately, this is what happened. Yeah, there's no facts behind no, it. No, no, there's, because there's not even time to gather the facts before they're already saying Spain planted a bomb. I'm glad it's just not today. No, it's, it's, there was not, like literally within hours of the explosion, both papers were printing that Spain did it. There was no, we didn't find out until within the last, what, 50 years that it was literally a fire in the ammunition box. Yeah. It was nothing. It was nobody. It was a complete and total accident. But Sorry, Spain. Yeah. Yeah, we're really sorry, Spain, because we kind of fucked you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not we. We weren't here. No, we weren't born yet. Hurts and bullets. <laughs> anyway, so word gets out. Rumors begin to fly. Instantly, there's investigations, but nobody's waiting for them. Instantly, it's boom. Remember the main to hell with Spain. I mean, that's literally one of the headlines. Remember the main to hell with Spain. Um Hertz and Pulitzer are all over. The, they don't even bother to find out what the problem is. Um, there's the, pl the, pl the papers are already filled with brutality against the Cuban rebels, and it's all Spain's fault. Cuba's just trying to live their life, and we were just down there looking out for Cuba, and boom, they blew us up. How dare they? They called it invasion, Spanish treachery. All these headlines are just popping up all over these newspapers. Um, at one point, Theodore Roosevelt, who was the assistant secretary of the U.S. Navy, was forced to get involved because the New York Journal published an interview with him that he never did. They made the whole thing up. Yes. So the New York Journal obviously was like a, a wannabe. Yes. And Roosevelt was like, I never did this interview. However, it has been pointed out later that he would sometimes give an interview and then later say, I didn't do that. <laughs> because he was, after all, Teddy Roosevelt, who, when I get to do the Spanish-American War itself, my favorite war, which sounds weird, but it is my favorite war. So when I get to do the Spanish-American War, I will tell you why Teddy Roosevelt is very involved in that. But anyway. So we need a Spanish drink, too. We need a Spanish drink, too. Um, <laughs> sangria, no, a Spanish slash American drink. Yes. Or Roosevelt drink. I don't know. Someone, someone something, help us out. Something, Send us drink suggestions is what we're saying, people. Yeah, I don't want to get all of them off TikTok. <laughs> so anyway, these two papers try to outdo each other. They're really trying to get public sentiment but see, here's the thing. They want to, they're, they're trying to sell papers. They're not trying to start a war because starting a war would be bad. They don't want to start a war because generally when you have a war, 
papers sales go down because people can't afford to advertise because all of their money is going towards the war effort. All of their resources are going towards the war effort, but they want to sell papers, so they're doing this whole... Oh, interesting. It's like the whole song and dance where it's like, we want to tiptoe around right. the war. We want to get you right up to it, but then we want to be able to backtrack yeah. and not do it. But they couldn't backtrack fast enough. Um, there is a leak that there's some there's some pol jailbreak of political prisoners in Havana. Um, one of these political prisoners actually says that he heard Hertz say to, he was a journalist, and he heard Hertz say to a photographer, an artist, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war. I, I've heard that. I've heard that yes. quote. There's no hard evidence to prove that this quote is real or proof that it's accurate, but it's out there nonetheless. So yellow journalism, don't know. Um, according to the University of Virginia, even these papers were actually trying to get actual war. Um, even the New York Journal, read, Journal read, ran the headline, how do you like the journal's war for three days in May of 1898? It was meant to mock the notion that they were actually responsible for the war. They were certainly not clear, serious claims of taking responsibility for the incitation of the war, um, writes Joseph Campbell in his book, Yellow Journalism. But there were certainly sensational stories like this. This one was done by Richard Harding Davis. He was a journalist from the New York Journal. He was a rep war reporter in Cuba. He f found a... Um, the Spanish general Valerno Weiler hated the American press, and any time he found a journalist, he would throw them out. So David, he would throw them into jail. So Davis didn't want to go to jail, so he runs back to the United States in 1897. On his way home, he runs into a couple of women, Carmen Clemencia Arango, who was being expelled from Cuba by the Spanish because of her, quote, her ties to the insurgents. Now, Arango tells Davis that she and two of her companions had been searched for secret messages by the Spanish before they were boarding the ship. They actually were carrying secret messages, but they were never found, so that's neither here nor there. It's like, anyway, yeah, there's multiple ways you can carry messages. Yes, so these messages that they were carrying were not discovered. But she's reporting this to Davis, the reporter, that she was searched. So now Davis doesn't, not only does not mention the women in his report, but he says that by the time he'd gotten to New York, he had witnessed naked women being surrounded by three inspectors. In actuality, it was three women that it inspected the women. And the original search was actually done behind closed doors. However, Davis reported that it was done on the deck in front of all the other passengers. Oh, that's so lurid. Yes, which is what he was trying to do. That was the entire point. I mean, it's not wrong, though, to say that exact same thing's happening these days. Not at all. You take a kernel of truth and you blow it up 500 times. Yeah. Like the grain of sand in the oyster shell making the pearl. Um, that's what they're trying to do. So 
Chicago Magazine, Arthur Brisbane is an editor, was an editor that started out working for the Pulitzer, and he ended up going to Hearst Paper. Um, he knew that there were mysteries and murderous stories. He knew that these were going to sell. So he's really selling these stories. And Pulitzer eventually says to Brisbane um, that he's turning his paper into a Victorian scandal sheet. And this is where Brisbane says, yes, but look at how much money you're making. Yeah. But um, is that, like, that's not what he wanted. No. So Brisbane's argument was the whole human race, according to the highest authority, has been examined once already because it wasn't going right and only the rainbow protects it from a, from rep, a repesh, repetition. They say that Hearst papers are yellow. Remember that the sun is yellow and we all need a little sunshine. These are the colors of the rainbow. Oh, gross. Yeah, he's gross. He's really gross. That's so just like, oh, no, I don't like him. He's justifying his... Lying. Lying by saying we all need a little color. However, Brisbane stays with hers for, for years and years and years. And when there was the whole incident on the ship with Marion Davies, Brisbane is very silent. Oh. So should I ever get to do another her story, I may mention Marion Davies and the ship. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. Um, or don't wait to hear it. Or don't wait to hear it. Because <laughs> I am telling you, I just double checked <laughs> our list. And uh -huh. that's like in four more episodes, we have okay. the Hearst Martini. I feel like I need to do the, sh the ship story with Marion Davies. I think that neat. So you uh, have foreshadowing. foreshadowing. That's what it's going to be. If you're interested in that, stay tuned, folks. Um, but Brisbane did not mention that, which I have to say, he's gross and slimy, but kind of admire that because, not to give too much away, I think hers was kind of fucked on that whole ordeal. I My opinion may change after I research it more. Yeah, I don't know enough to say, but... I'm just saying that in the industry, being gross and slimy sometimes is an asset for certain types <laughs> yes. of jobs. Yes. So, but yellow journalism was not limited to the Spanish-American War. Um, Nellie Bly, who worked for Pulitzer, was an investigative journalist. She was, Nellie Bly is another fascinating human that I would Which, like to talk about. Oh, yeah. Her story is crazy. Crazy. So, she was a famous journalist who did an expose on the New York mental health hospitals on Blackwell Island. She also was the, um, that was called 10 days in a madhouse. She also did a story about circumnavigating the globe in a certain number of days. And she made it in her original thing was 80 days. There was another journalist who went the other way who did it in 72 days. That's way faster to go the other way. Yeah. And this was, this is a whole nother thing that I could possibly do a story on. Um, the drunk history on that is so good. Oh, oh I haven't heard that one. Yeah. Oh, you have to watch it. If, yeah. it. if you're at all interested in the whole Nellie Bly story, watch the drunk history. It's amazing. But so the Spanish American war, was what was caused by this yellow journalism. It only lasted a couple of months. Cuba eventually won their independence. Um, U.S. took over some of the Spanish colonies. This is why we have some of them still today um, that are territories. 
I don't know. They're not colonies, but they're not part of our country. No. I, I, I don't know how I feel about that. That's a whole other thing. Um, anyway, yellow journalism, it's a form of evil in itself, they say. And um, the aftermath of the war, the public actually began to distrust the news. Imagine that. Yeah, I can't imagine that. People don't really trust the news now. Um, According to Yellow Journalism by David R. Spencer, one suggested suggestion involved creating endowments for journalists. They're trying to figure out how to how journalists can make money without doing this. So one of these suggestions was that journalists simply did not need to be for-profit businesses. And Andrew Carnegie suggested that we limit profits of journalists by just allowing him to buy the papers. Andrew Carnegie wanted to just go in and buy all the papers so that they would just report the news and not try to turn a profit. I don't feel like that would have solved the problem. No, it would Because that would have been like... Because then Andrew Carnegie would have eventually needed to make money from yes. his investment. But that was his idea. So they tried a bunch of plans none of it actually worked um but they kept trying so another problem with the whole thing was um the whole mckinley assassination oh this was kind of what sort of sent Hearst kind of went down and didn't really make it Pulitzer went back to his Hard journalism. Hard journalism. Yes, he 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 went back to the roots of. Okay, I'm gonna pin. Hearst. Hearst reported there was a, it was reported in his paper quote if bad institutions and bad men can be gotten rid of only by killing, then killing must be done. Shortly after that, McKinley was assassinated. Oh no. And Hertz never really recovered oh. from that. But Pulitzer went back to his accuracy, his motto, accuracy, terseness, accuracy. And he kind of put the yellow journalism behind him, which is why he is Giving now, out prizes. Right, why there was a, an American journalism prize named for him. Not to say that Hertz was a horrible, horrible man. I don't think, I think he got killed carried away with well you have to think too stuff. like how young was he? he he was a college kid yes but threw himself into this he was like 30 years younger than Pulitzer yeah he did not have the hardened background of journalism right he didn't have the maturity no of it and he matured in different ways and he went a different direction well, and with his whole movie producing. At partner. that point in time, he basically, like, now that you said movie producing, he basically was producing a newspaper. Yes. And like you would a motion picture. Yes. So, uh -huh. I mean, you can't really put him in the spot of, like, you're an evil person. And his motion pictures and his newspaper kind of went round and round and round and went fed into the other. Yeah, that makes sense. We'll talk more about him later. Yeah. I promise. No, we'll, he's we will for sure talk more about him later because he's we have we already have a drink picked yes. for Hearst. But um, descendants of Hearst don't sue me. It's I can 
I'll give you my citations. <laughs> and besides, I'm drunk. Yes, and we're not experts, <laughs> no, as we, no, no, we no. always mention. <laughs> but we still have another story for you, yes. so don't hang up yet. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about Vlado Tineski. Vlado Tineski was born in 1952 in Yugoslavia. He was the second of three children. His father was a World War II veteran, and he had a particularly tense relationship with his mother, as quite a few criminals do. Yes, it seems to be a thing. Yeah. You know how they say it's like head injury and like, you know, there's certain things. Abusive dad, overbearing mom. Yeah, that's definitely one of them. So he studied journalism in Croatia. He also was interested in poetry and writing. And at the age of 21, he met a law student named Vesna. And he later married her and they had two children. Tineski worked at a radio station while Vesna became the city's first female lawyer. Oh. So by the 1980s, Tineski... I don't remember the story at all. Like, no clue. (laughs) Never even heard it. I just heard yours, so I do remember (laughs) it. Um, Tineski worked at a radio station while... Oh. By the 1980s, Tineski began working for the local newspaper, and in 2002, his father committed suicide, and a few months later, his mom accidentally overdosed on medication. Oh. Um, He had worked for a journalist for over 20 years, and most of his career, he worked for local newspapers in his hometown of Kosevo, Macedonia. Kosevo is a small and quiet town. Most of his stories were about what's going on in the town, like... You know, what's happening at the school, what's going on mm-hmm. at the local government office. Is that Kosovo? Um, or is that a country? No, that's a country. Okay. This is Kisevo. I'm like, I know I've heard Kosovo. Yeah. So in 2005, he got, uh, like, handed this huge story. Mm-hmm. A woman was missing, and then she was later found raped and murdered just outside of town. The body was wrapped in plastic bags, and the victim was identified as Mitra Simit. Simjanoska, a 64-year-old, and she had gone missing. Yeah. I remember the story now. Yeah, she'd <laughs> gone missing after a trip to the market. So Tineski worked close closely with the local police, and um, he covered the murder. Both his editor and the local residents praised him for his coverage of the horrible crime. Tisk, tisk, yeah. tisk. Over the next three years, three more women would go missing. The, the dots you're connecting in your head, listeners follow them yeah follow those follow (laughs) follow the leads um so three more women will go missing the first was iljubica likoska a 56 year old woman who disappeared after going to get groceries also another trip to the market she disappeared in november of 2007 the next was zivana temelskoska 65 years old she disappeared in may of 2008 um she fell for he's waiting a long time between or yeah so she ended up falling for a hoax about her son being hospitalized which i'm sure you've heard those scams before but this one was not good um the in-laws recently got one supposedly from me that i and husband were somewhere and our car broke down and we needed them to wire us money um to get the car fixed and the kid that like knew the names had the names of the children were with a friend. It was an email. That's and I'm frightening. Like, I would not email you. First of all. First of all. Secondly, your husband would just get it fixed. Fixed. Yeah. Or he would just fix it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It was creepy. 
father-in-law was like falling for it. He was upset. Oh no. So the third was 73-year-old retired cleaner, Gorica Pavleski. She actually went missing in May of 2003 and had not been found. And two of them were later discovered in the same condition as the first woman that was like wrapped in the plastic bags and Uh whatnot. Tineski covered each murder with the same attention to detail he had used with the first. His column quickly became super popular among amongst the locals. He's probably got a lot of insight on the killers. He's got a lot of insight on the killers. Killer. Killer. However, police soon began being suspicious of the coverage that Tineski was. Does he know details that they've not shared with him? There were details that were popping up in his stories that police noticed hadn't been shared with the public. Oh, that's interesting. He's just very, very thorough. The the police began wondering if he knew who the murderer was and was keeping it to himself. Yes, that's what's happening. But the police were only half right. (laughs) Tineski did know who the... Who was who the murderer was because it was he him. He was doing it himself. <laughs> now, was he motivated because he was a psycho murderer or was he motivated to get more popular in his movie? That's a chicken and egg question, I think. Right. So for three years, Tineski had been living a double life. His wife of 31 years described him as quiet and gentle and his coworkers called him unbelievably low-key and soft-natured. Oh. I'm not sure I would want to be described that way. But if you looked at his behavior, nothing could be further from the truth. Of the four women who disappeared, the three whose bodies were found displayed signs of being viciously raped, molested, and tortured before being strangled to death with a phone cord. But it's very disturbing that they are significantly older than him. Yeah. Um, It was the knowledge of the phone cord that led police to Tineski in the first place. They had initially revealed that the first woman who had been strangled, or they had initially revealed that the woman, take three. They had initially revealed that the woman had been strangled, but they had not said with what. Uh-huh. And in his column, Tineski had correctly named the specific type of phone cord that was used. Ooh. So he like said such and such a brand. Yeah. Interesting. So he was arrested on suspicion of murder. Um, during questioning, They got a search warrant for his home. His home was filled with pornography. They also found notes about his crimes. That his wife didn't know about? I don't know about the... She might have known about the pornography. I don't know about that. But he... There was notes about his crimes, which again, she also might have known about and just thought it was part of his journalistic... Yes. Whatever. Yeah, that's exactly what I would assume. Yeah. So he... um, He had been committing murders and keeping notes on them, and he would write about them in the newspapers, obviously. Had he committed a murder prior to the first woman? Not that we know of. Okay. So police did not... They were not able to uncover his motives, but there were some similarities amongst the victims. They were all cleaners, which was the same profession that his mother was in. Oh, interesting. The victims also had a striking resemblance to his mother and they believe that all of the victims might have known his mother. They knew her? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, Tineski's DNA was determined to match the semen found on the victims. So, duh. Was his mother still alive at this point? No. Mother had died. Died. Okay. Yeah, which could so have been... So he didn't get to kill her, so he wanted to kill her. Yeah, that could have been what set this whole thing off. Yeah. So... 
While the police ha were building their case against him, he committed suicide in jail by drowning himself in a bucket of water. And in Macedonia, he became known as the Kasevo monster after the town where the three bodies were found. So this is similar to a case where the where a Polish journalist, Christian Bala, committed murder of a Polish business owner. And the clues for this, the clues to solving this killing were found in Bala's first novel, which was published after the murder. Oh, wow. And then there's also the Dutch writer Richard Klinkhammer, who wrote a manuscript about killing his wife, which was never published. And then did he kill his wife? Yes. So I used all that's interesting.com, Wikipedia, cool, interesting stuff, grunge.com, and bizarrepedia. Wow. As always, you can contact us on Facebook at Crime and Time OTR. On Instagram, we are Crime and Time OTR. On Twitter, we're at Crime and Time OTR. And our email is crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. Email is where you'll, want to, where you will want to send us cocktail suggestions, things Topics. you want to learn about. Yeah. yeah. Or just say hi. Or just say hi. And we also have a new Patreon page Yay. if you want to buy us a drink. Buy us a drink. So that is patreon.com slash crimeandtimeotr. And we're going to be offering some perks for our patrons. Absolutely. I'm excited. See you there. Thank you for listening. <laughs>